Welcome to the Restoration Church weekly podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And be sure to download the Church Center app. This is the best way to stay connected and up to date with all that's happening at Restoration Church. Most importantly, we hope the following message will help draw you closer to Christ. Thanks for listening. Hey, we are at the end of our series titled Love in a Nutshell. Uh, you all, when you sat down, should have had a card that looks like this on it. Next week, we are beginning a new series titled Asking for a Friend. You all received one of these because it's your job this week to hand this out to somebody who you think might be interested in this series. Uh, how many of you know someone who has ever questioned if God is real or if God exists, right? How many of you have ever wondered, does my faith have to look like my parents' faith? You asked these questions over the last um, several months or so, and we are now at the point where we are going to start addressing them. Uh, in this past week's email, these eight questions, eight, eight quick ponderings, the eight questions, these are great questions. You guys asked some doozies. Uh, stuff about AI and global warming and all sorts of things we're going to cover in that last week. So uh, good stuff there. I would encourage you to invite, 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 share on social media, tag friends. Let's pack this place out for this series so that we can offer the hope that we have in Christ throughout the series. Sound good? Okay. We're finishing up our series, Love in a Nutshell. When we talk about love being what it's literally all about, as we have throughout this whole series, we're not talking about love as like this cultural, emotive, feeling-based eroticism that Hollywood wants to promote all the time, or, or even just universal tolerance as our society is you know, promoting uh, more and more. We're talking about the love of God proven in Jesus Christ. The self-sacrificial, the giving, the dying, the bending low, the serving love that lifts others, the other people up. When Jesus gave his, if you forget everything else, remember this talk at the very end of his life, he simply said, hey, if there's nothing else that you remember about me, remember this. Your calling as a follower of me is to love one another the same way that God has loved you through me. That's it. We are called as followers of Jesus to love one another the same way God through Jesus has loved us. And uh, let's, just, let's just be honest, the history of the church has not done this very well. Let's just be honest, even most of the way people look at Christians today, it's not this. This is not the way that people assume Christians behave. And it's justified often, and it's unfortunate. And so when Jesus came, he said, I'm going to boil it down. I'm going to make it really simple for you. Here's what I want you to do moving forward. I want you to go into the world, and I want you to love one another the same way that I have loved you. That's it. That's it. This love embraces and gives and sacrifices for the good of others. It doesn't push or claw or fight its way to the front of the line. It loves and it encourages and it cheers on everybody else. It is goes to the back of the line to where the servants are. It's messy, it's practical, it's, it's gritty, it's not overly spiritual, it's not impractical, it's not intangible, right? It's, it's hands-on. It's love that gives, it's love that sacrifices, it's love that bleeds for other people so that their lives might be improved. It's this simple. Look at Jesus and live like him in the world. Let's just look at Jesus and then live like he lived in the world. But the challenge is that we don't have the video footage, right? We have four Gospels. We don't have the video footage. We have four Gospels. And so we didn't see every minute of his life. We didn't see every interaction he had. But luckily, this guy by the name of Paul, an early follower of Jesus, came along and he, and he parsed it out for us. 
And he described the love of God for us. It's a text that we all know so very well for the most part. You probably heard this at a million weddings you've been to. First Corinthians chapter 13. If you have a text with you this morning, you're welcome to join me there. We're not going to go over all the descriptions because we covered a few of these ways that he discovered, uh, that he described love last week. But here are a few of the ones that I find most challenging, and I think as a culture, maybe we find most challenging. And I wasn't actually even going to mention this one because I talked about love is patient last week a little bit, but after the week I had with my children, <clears throat> not all my children, one child in particular, I was like, I have to preach on love is patient. I have to, because I need it, right? I, I, I need it as much as not everybody else's. So here's the thing. Love is not pushy. Love is not pushy. If someone is pushing you, they're not loving you. In fact, love actually pushes me to accommodate to you, not to force you to accommodate to me. Love chooses to move at another person's pace. It doesn't pressure another to match our pace. Rather, love is a decision to pause and to accommodate to the other person's pace. If you've ever had children, you know how challenging this can be. Waiting for them to put their shoes on, waiting for them to get in the car, waiting for them to brush their teeth, waiting them for basically do anything in life, it requires an immense amount of patience. Something that I did not have much of this week. But here's what happens. When, when our kids won't move at our pace, that we want them, that we need them, that we demand them to move at, what do we, what do we typically do? What do you typically do? What's your default? You yell? Do you demand? Do you threaten? A lot of chuckles out there. I don't know what that means, but we've got places to be. We've got important things to do. And so you better hurry up and get in the car and buckle your seatbelt because we got to go, right? I mean, we, how, what's, your, what's your default when your kids can't match your pace? We threaten or do you just do it for them? I think, I, think that's, I think that's oftentimes where a lot of us end up. We just do it for them. Sit down. I'll tie your shoes for you because I'll do it in 20 seconds where it's going to take you five minutes to do this, right? I will brush your teeth better than you can in 20 seconds than you would in the three minutes it's going to take you. So, like, let me just do it for you. We just do it for them. The reality is our kids will never match our pace. They can't match our pace. They don't have the skills or the development to match our pace. And as margin decreases in our ever-increasingly busy lives, I mean, just think about your life. Is it getting busier? And as our margin for time gets smaller, faster pace means that they'll have to pick up the slack. And then our patience will be tested. And our relationships are going to suffer the consequences because of our busier lives. I need my kids and you to move faster to accommodate to my busy schedule. As margin for time decreases with busier schedules, patience is naturally strained. But did you know that 40 years ago, the average five-year-old could tie their own shoes? Today, the average eight-year-old can't tie their own shoes. Why? Because we don't have time for our kids to learn to tie their shoes, or we just buy them Velcro, and that's a solution too, but... The average eight-year-old cannot tie their own shoes. This plays into an epidemic of enablement that parents are doing for their kids what kids are fully capable of doing for themselves. We lack margin and we have no patience. It may seem harmless when our kids are little, but if this pattern persists, it's no longer about five-year-olds not being able to tie your shoes. Now it's about 30-year-olds who can't pay their debt. It's about 30-year-olds still living in your basement because we've enabled them since they were five to do what... They could absolutely do for themselves. 
Our lack of patience as parents is where enablement begins. I have things to do and places to go, so hurry up, or better yet, let me just do it for you because that will be faster and I don't have time for you to develop properly as a human being. I needed this lesson this week, friends. This isn't about you guys, all right? This is about me. Okay, well, (laughs) all right, so take it. Take it to heart. Love doesn't expect everyone to keep pace with me, and this is a really hard word. It discovers the pace of another and either slows down or speeds up to keep pace with them. And I'm not saying that this is natural. I'm not saying it's even reasonable. I'm saying this is how God treated us. Therefore, we should treat others the same way. He accommodated us. God doesn't force his pace on us. God accommodated to our capacity. And like a good father, he chose to go at our pace, to bend to us, to speak our language, to become man so that we could know him and have access to him. So love is patient. Love also does not dishonor others, Paul says. Love elevates other people. Love looks at the dignity inherent in others and it lifts them up to the level of their humanity rather than stripping them down to objects to be used. Love respects others. It promotes, it considers the worth and dignity of others and treats them accordingly. To honor someone is also tied into the idea of consideration. We talked a little bit about this last week because here's the thing, when we don't consider other people that our decisions impact, we often turn them into servants and slaves. Think about this. When, when, I mean, I see this in my household all the times, and again, I participate in this, so I'm not just like blaming everybody else, right? But when people don't pick up after themselves, what are they saying? I expect somebody else to do it for me. When I don't bring my dishes to the counter, what am I saying? I expect somebody else to do it for me. I say, you're my servant, you're my slave, you do my work for me. It's dishonoring of them because it is stripping people down to a level of slavehood and servanthood rather than elevating people and lifting them up and honoring them because that's what honor does. It lifts people up. Now, we don't do this because they're more valuable than us. We simply treat them as if they were more valuable. And we should do this not again because it's reasonable, not because it's natural, but because this is how God treated us. When Jesus went to the cross for us, it says that he submitted himself to us. He came up underneath us to lift us up. Why else would he have died? In that moment, God put us ahead of himself. And if we are a follower of him, we should put others ahead of ourselves as well. Not because they're better, not because they deserve it, because this is the love of God manifest in us. Paul also says that love is not easily angered. It's impossible to completely avoid anger, but if you are loving the way that God has loved you, you will not be quick to anger. The Greek word anger is a cooking term. It means to stir up. And we don't use this expression much anymore, but if you've used that expression, you feel stirred up. When you get angry, you feel like you're being stirred up inside. There's a, there's a whirlwind of chaos inside of you. That's kind of what it means to be angry. But when you decide to love like God through Christ loves you, you will not be easily stirred up or easily angered. Love doesn't get ticked off easily. Anybody feel like they get ticked off rather easily? You don't have to raise your hand. Thank you. Wow, bold. I like it. Well, love doesn't do that. Love doesn't do that. Love does not irritate quickly. Love can listen. Love absorbs. Love is like a sponge. Love can take it. And sometimes... You just have to take it without giving it back. 
When you're in a difficult conversation with someone you love, there are times that you just have to absorb what's coming at you rather than reacting. Love doesn't react in irritation or anger. Love responds patiently. Love recognizes that they may push your buttons, but whose buttons are those? They're yours. They're not their buttons. Man, we did a whole series on this about a year ago. Nobody has ever made you angry. All they did was brought up the anger that's already in you. If I'm easily angered, that's a me issue. It's not a you issue. There is something wrong with me if I'm easily angered. It's not about what you're doing. It's about what's already in me. And to follow Jesus means to learn to deal with what's in me before it comes out of me. It means to learn to absorb rather than reflect and respond in like kind. Paul also says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't have a file drawer on anybody. Hold on, remember what you did last week? Remember how you weren't home on time again? Remember how you failed to call? Remember how you came home late last night? Remember I got up with the kids twice last night while you pretended to sleep? Remember that? (laughs) Remember how you forgot to take out the trash last week too? Remember that thing you said two years ago? Remember what you did at Christmas in 1991? (laughs) Love doesn't have a file drawer, friends. It doesn't have a file drawer of all the things that everyone has done wrong against us. Love doesn't do that. But but here's what we think. If come on, well if if I'm not to keep a record of the wrongs committed against me, what does that mean? I'm gonna have to forgive people. I would have to let it go. I would have to give up control and give up power and let go of my anger. I would have to treat people the same way that God through Jesus has treated me. Love does not hold past wrongs against people because that is not how God treated us, friends. It's not natural. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't even seem reasonable. But that is not how God has treated us. And so we must learn to rise above what seems natural. This whole new way of living is about mimicking God. How God treats us. And God does not keep a file cabinet on me. Praise the Lord. There is no file cabinet on me that God is like, well, remember you did back in 1986? Remember how you treated that kid on the playground? Yeah, God doesn't have that. If he had a file cabinet on any single one of us, it would be miles and miles and miles wide. But he he never opens it. He hasn't forgotten, he just doesn't bring it up. He doesn't hold it over us as an excuse for not loving us. And I'm grateful for that. Anybody else grateful for that? God doesn't hold all of our sins over us as an excuse for not loving us. It doesn't seem easy. It's not natural to do this. But it's a better way to live. It's a freer way to live, friends. Follow Jesus, and over time, you'll, you'll find brand new rhythms of life, freer rhythms of life, more, more holistic rhythms of life, a brand new way of thinking and living and loving in particular, forgiving, and then pretending to forget is always your best bet. Because forgiving someone, here's the thing, it doesn't mean that what they did doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean that what they did was okay. It's not excusing their behavior or justifying their behavior. It doesn't mean that you have to be the victim. And it doesn't mean that you have to reconcile either. Forgiveness is an attitude, and it's a decision to give up resentment and allow God to be the administrator of justice. 
Forgiveness means that you're not going to live in the past, but you're going to hope for a healed future. Forgiveness always hopes for reconciliation. It always hopes that there would be a whole relationship, but it does not demand it. Forgiveness means I will treat you in love despite all the wrongs that you've committed against me. Remember this. You can be exactly right 100% of the time. And nobody's going to want to be with you. Nobody will want to be around you. You can be right about 100% of the time about everything you say and nobody's going to want to be near you and it won't be because that you're wrong. It's because you are always right and you just couldn't keep that dang file cabinet shut. You always are trudging up the past and bringing up the past and you know what? You were right. Every single detail, you were right. You had it correct. And nobody wants to be around you because you couldn't keep the file cabinet shut. But God did this for us. He said, as far as the east is from the west, I've removed, removed your transgressions from you. I don't treat you as your sins deserve. So friends, don't treat others as your sins deserve either. God has forgiven us. We also ought to forgive one another. Paul says that love always protects. I shared the story a few weeks ago when I was seven or eight years old. I was at a little league baseball game and I, my dad had this Camaro and I um and I, I stepped out and I shoved my foot against the door and it hit the car next to us and it made this huge thud and this huge gash in this guy's car and uh, the guy was in the car by the way and uh, he feels the he feels the car right it's rocking and he's he just comes out and he turns into this ferocious angry monster of a man right he is spitting mad he is angry as all get out. And he comes around the car, he looks at the gash, and he looks down at me, and he starts cursing me out in the middle of this parking lot, spitting, I mean, fire in his eyes. And my dad steps in between the man and me, and he becomes my shield. And he receives the curses, and he receives the slander, and he receives all this horrible things about how horrible of a parent he is and how rotten his kid is and, like, all the things that this man was saying and the spit on his face. I mean, my dad was a shield. You know, love always protects. Love always, always enters into the gap and suffers love, suffers attack on behalf of the one it loves. It's a shield. And the reason that anybody would do this for another person is not because it makes sense, right? For me to step in and get hurt for what somebody else did, it doesn't make sense. But this is exactly what God did for us. And so we ought to do it. For one another. God stepped into the gap of our accusers and our attackers and he bore the insults and the pain and the beatings that should have been ours. And so we ought to do the same for other. Paul says that love always trusts or love always thinks the best about people. This is a hard one. Love doesn't assume the worst about other people's intentions. Love puts a generous assumption into the gap of our lack of knowledge. When your kid is late and past curfew, where does your mind naturally go? Does it go to the worst or does it assume the best? When your spouse isn't answering the phone, where does your mind drift off to as to what they're up to? Love does not make unfounded assumptions about people that slanders or blurs their character either in public or in one's mind. Friends, I have sat with so many couples in marriage counseling over the years. And, and this is like such a huge part of healthy relationships that when there's bad communication, we put something into the gap 
And if you put a, a, a negative, uh, assumptive response into that gap about what the other person is thinking or his, the motivations or the intentions of what the other person is doing, you color the whole relationship. And so one thing that you can begin to do better is to communicate about your intentions and your motivations. And if you're going to be home late, give the other person a call. It's not that hard, especially in today's day and age. But you put a generous assumption into the gap founded with good communication, friends, you'll have a thriving marriage. Love always trusts. Paul also says that love always hopes. Love always desires a better tomorrow. Love always desires progress and blessing. Love never gets bogged down in circumstances because it knows that God is faithful. I don't know who needs to hear this right now, but you, you, you are bogged down in a circumstance. You are bogged down in the heaviness of life, in the weightiness of life. But God rests on God's faith. Love rests on God's faithfulness to support it, and it, it, it's uplifted, and it's encouraged in those hard times. Love frames every moment around God's gracious provision, knowing God is capable and caring. Love orients our hearts with the heart of God and anchors our soul to his promise. And so love always hopes. And, and why? Because Jesus, when he was wetting blood in the midst of his agony in the garden of Gethsemane, at the moment of his arrest, this, this arrest that would eventually lead to his torture and lead to his death, he did not consider the present moment and lose heart, but he relied and believed the will, the power, and the love of God would sustain him and vindicate him. Jesus died, but then he rose. Love always hopes. And finally, Paul says, love always perseveres. Love doesn't give up when things are hard. Love doesn't quit. It persists. And it not only endures, but it chooses to learn and grow in the face of obstacles. And why would it do this? Because God, though we sinned and sinned again and sinned some more, did not give up on the human project. But God continued to meet us where we are at and encourage us and spur us forward. Love does not quit. So here it is, Paul's not exhaustive list. This isn't even the whole list of 1 Corinthians 13, but we know from last week in Colossians 3 that there's more added to this. Other portions of Scripture add more to the descriptions of love. And so this is not an exhaustive list by any stretch of the imagination. But Paul looked at how God has treated us, and he says, hey, these are some of the ways that I see God treating us. We should go then and, and, and live like this and treat others the same way. If you look at this list, you're probably thinking, on my best days, I get a, what, a C plus, maybe, on my best days. On my worst days, goodness, you know, it's, it's, it's all the window. Take a personal inventory. What, what are your sticking points? Stu, do a little bit of a, you know, personal reflection here. What are your sticking points? In which of these areas do you need to submit and to surrender more to God? And then take a relational inventory. Aren't these the qualities that you're longing for in your relationships? Wouldn't, wouldn't these, if they were more evident, mean healthier households, healthier relationships? Isn't this what we're hoping for? And if this is what you expect from other people, then my friends, begin living this way towards others. And you will find then healthier households and healthier relationships. And if that's what you want, but you don't think that you can be these towards others, understand the beauty of following Jesus. Because as we said in the week one of the series, that the strength to love isn't something that we just conjure up within ourselves. This is something we submit more to God. We ask God for the ability to be patient, to not dishonor others, to not be easily angered. When we feel these emotions are rising up in us, we ask God, I need more Jesus and less of me right now. 
And God, because these are a fruit of God's spirit, love is a fruit of God's spirit, will give it generously because we serve a generous God. And Jesus says, come on, friends, follow me. If you ever wonder where we're going when you follow me, love is where we're going. Every day of your commitment and your surrender, I'm going to take you deeper into love. That's where Jesus is going. And that's where he is calling us and encouraging us then. And it's not just any love. It's not the love of the world. It's not the love of Hollywood. It's not the love that, you know, society is promoting. It is the love of God manifested in Jesus Christ, made known through his sacrifice on the cross. And if you ever wonder if we'll get there, remember this. He who began a good work in you, he who began a good work in you will finish it to completion. He, he began it, friends. He will complete it. So here's the thing. Some of you are thinking, Ross, this is good. I needed this. Maybe I could have done without some of this this morning because now you have you know, some, some challenges ahead of me about how I'm going to respond to this. But you might be thinking, Ross, am, am, am I just supposed to be a punching bag? You know, in my relationships, constantly just absorbing their anger because love isn't easily angered. What's that going to do to my soul? Am, am I just to be walked over? And if I never remember what they've done to me, then they're just going to keep on doing it. And if I'm always stepping into the gap and being their protector, then how are they ever going to learn? And if I believe the best about them for 10 years and I'm constantly being lied to, so when does it stop? Where is the self-love? Where is the self-care in all this? And is there no discipline? Is there no consequence in relationship? Are we just supposed to love unconditionally all the time, which means that we get walked over half the time? The short answer, my friends, is yes. But here's what I want you to know. A healthy relationship will have reciprocity. A healthy relationship will have reciprocity, but that is not a condition or a prerequisite you need to love as you are responsible to love them. Your responsibility is to love. That's it. And so still taking our cues from God, we must understand two things about being in a relationship. The first is this. You are only one person in every relationship you have. I know that blows your mind, right? I know that's like super profound. You are only one person in every relationship you have, and you can therefore only control one person in that relationship. And who is that person? If any narcissist among us or sociopaths, I know that you're trying to control the other person, but let's shove that aside, okay? You can only control one person in your relationship, and that is you. So many relationship problems come from our attempts at controlling others rather than controlling ourselves. All I can do is ask, what does love require of me? And every given moment, in any situation I'm confronted with, whether a toddler in the midst of discovering her independence, or a sassy five-year-old, or an over-energized nine-year-old, or a hormonal preteen, an exhausted wife, an overworked husband, a nosy neighbor, a pompous boss, a lazy co-worker, a generous friend, a loving teacher, a kind stranger, everybody else, your enemy, somebody who's hurt you, anybody. All you can ask in those situations is what is my responsibility in this moment and it is to love them. So what does love require of me? And then Jesus, Heavenly Father, more of Jesus, less of me, more of Jesus, less of me. I say that. I said that Ethan and I were at the store the other day. Ethan, where were we? I was, I was with Ethan and I was with my daughter. Where were we? What did I say? I said, I said, Lord, all you have to do is ask for it, is what I said. And he thought I was, I was telling Evelyn something. And I was saying, no, Jesus, 
You've told me all I have to do is ask for it, and you'll give me patience. <laughs> and so I was asking for in the middle of the story. I was like, all you have to do is ask for. Okay, Jesus, more of me, more, more, oh, less of me, less of me, less of me, less of me, more of Jesus. And I had patience to deal with Evelyn differently. It was amazing how that works, right? Pray for the courage and the strength then to live out what you are told. It requires my patience. It requires my kindness, my willingness to absorb and not take offense, my forgiveness, my belief in them, and my hope for them. What love does not require of me is to control them. But one thing that we rarely talk about concerning relationship is that they always exist within a playing field. Every relationship has boundaries and parameters. Not many relationships have formal or stated boundaries, but every relationship exists within parameters. And this is a really important concept, so we're going to spend a minute here on this. There are certain actions and behaviors that are out of bounds when it comes to relationships. The Bible defines this principle as covenant. A covenant is an agreement made between two parties regarding the parameters of the relationship. That's all a covenant is. If you've been to a wedding, you'll see people stand before one another and they'll make promises to one another. They're stating the boundaries of what it means to be in relationship with each other. And we're going to abide by those promises. They're asking you, the witnesses, to help them stay within the boundaries of that relationship. Every, every relationship has these, in theory. Now, here's the thing. We, we never go to our neighbor and say, okay, Greg, you just moved into the neighborhood. Here's the list of rules for what it means to be my neighbor. Welcome. I'm glad. This is great. But here's the thing. If your neighbor started throwing his trash into your backyard thinking it was the landfill, there'd be some issues. If you got home one day and your neighbor was throwing a party in your house, there'd be some issues, right? There are assumed boundaries around every relationship. You never got together with your best friend and then thought, hey, well, some of you did as teenagers. You, you cut your hand open. You had a little blood covenant with your friends, right? But not, most of us didn't do that. <clears throat> You probably didn't get together and say, Here, here's the list of rules for what it means to be my friend. Here are the boundaries. But if your friend starts gossiping about you at school, if your friends start talking about you at the water cooler, if your friends, you know, you call them a million times and they never call you back, there's a fence taking place, right? And so there's some issues. Every relationship has boundaries. When the Bible speaks of God's relationship to us, it speaks of his hesed, literally his covenant love. Our relationship parameter with God is love. Love makes up the boundary for what it means to be in relationship with God and therefore ought to make up the boundary for being in relationship with others. And so think about this. Love, 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 love. This is the boundary. And when you're inside the boundary living rightly, it's beautiful and it's lovely and there's love and your household is healthy and your community is healthy and everything is going well. But when in our selfish pursuit we step outside the boundary, we sin. That's what the Bible calls sin. When we step outside the boundary of love and we begin to live selfishly, we reject God's relationship with us. We begin to hurt. We begin to hurt others. We abandon God's law. We step away from our humanity. Sin always comes prepackaged with the consequence. And the consequence of sin is death, the Bible tells us, but the consequence is also broken relationship. Every sin breaks a relationship. It steps outside the, bra- the, the parameter of right relating with others. So the question we need to ask is, what does love require of me? Remember, that is the question we need to ask constantly, always. What does love require of me in this situation? What does love require of me? So when the person I'm in relationship with steps outside the parameters, what does love require of me? Should I just absorb their anger and be their punching bag and be abused? Should I just keep believing in them, even if the evidence tells me that they're having an affair? Should I just tolerate their abuse and their slander and their gossip? 
Well, love is the fullness of both truth and grace. And whenever you have one without the other or one in part and the other in whole, that is not love. Truth calls out sin where it sees it. Truth calls out hurt. Truth speaks clearly about, clearly about the consequence of sin and truth illustrates the consequence that comes prepackaged with sin. We do this as parents all the time. We put our kids in time out. We take away their car keys. You've made choices. You've stepped over that line and now you've hurt people and you are responsible for your decisions. Truth comes clean about which side of the line the parameters it is standing on and it speaks honestly about which side of the line the other person is standing on. Truth stands courageously and it speaks boldly, but without grace. Truth by itself is just condemnation, friends. If all you have is truth and you don't have any grace, all you're doing is condemning people. And grace is an open door, right? Grace grace is an invitation back into relationship. Grace is the father welcoming the prodigal son back home and embracing the son as he returns home, celebrating his return. Grace is forgiveness and an opportunity at new life. But without truth, grace is just enablement. And friends, love demands both. Your love demands both. I'm going to invite the band forward. We're going to sing a final song as we reflect on this for just a minute longer. So I pray for your relationships, and I pray for you as well. I pray you can grasp the simple yet impossible principle that we ought to love one another the same way that God has loved us in the fullness of both truth and grace. I pray that you will stand up and you will speak truth when those you love and are in relationship with have walked outside the parameters of what it means to be in relationship with you. And I pray that the generous grace that God has bestowed upon you would invite them back into relationship. I'm going to say an actual prayer for you, and then we're going to sing a final song. Um, it's, it's a song we've kind of sung throughout this whole series, and it's just it's that cry that there would be more of Jesus and less of us, more of Jesus, less of us, that our life would just embody Jesus to the world. And we know that we can't do that by our own strength and by our own efforts, that we will fail continually. And so in those moments when love does not come natural, I pray that you would pray more of Jesus, less of me. Heavenly Father, I I need you. I needed this series. I needed this message just as as much as everybody else. God, I do not pretend that just because I'm a pastor of a church that I have it all together that I don't fail and that I don't stumble, that love is not evident in every single moment of my life. I, I, I long for that to be the day. That will be the day, Father, in eternity. And you're, you're crafting that in me now, Father. And so I pray that I would submit more of myself to you every single day. And I pray that for each one of us as well. I, this isn't just my prayer. I, I, I pray that everyone here is, is praying this with me, that we would submit more of ourselves, surrender more of ourselves, that we would lay down our selfish ambition, our vain conceit, Father, and we would die to ourselves so that more of you can shine brighter. The world really, really needs it. The world really, really needs a faithful model of Jesus. And I pray that we can be that model. This is how you designed us in the very beginning, Heavenly Father, to live in, in loving relationship with you and living relationship with others, Father. And, and we just, we screwed it up as we rejected you and abandoned you. We, we walked away from love. And by your love proven in Jesus Christ, you have invited us back.
And so as we surrender more, Father, may Jesus shine brighter in us. As we surrender more, may Jesus be greater. As we bend lower and give of ourselves more and cry and commit more, Father, may Jesus just be glorified and his majesty known, Father. As people see us, may they see Jesus. As people see us, may they see Jesus. That is my prayer for me. I pray it's a prayer for all of us, Father. Let us live faithfully, surrendering more. Do it in us. We do ask. And all who agreed and all who wanted it said, Amen.